Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. In today's episode, we're joined by Deirdre Fagan. Deirdre will be reading to us from and talking to us about Find a Place for Me, Embracing Love and Life in the Face of Death. Deirdre, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. So I'm just going to dive right in. And it's such a powerful title and a touching tribute to your husband. What led to your decision to write this book about love, life, and death? So it's interesting, you know, back in the 90s, when memoir was booming as a genre, I had decided I would want to write one one day. But of course, at that point, I was in my 20s. And I had an unusual adolescence I intended to write about. And then life took off, you know, I went to graduate school, I started as a professor, you know, I published scholarship, I later moved into creative writing. And here I was, after losing my late husband, who the book's about, and taking another position and re-earning tenure and re-earning promotion, I was writing creative work. And a couple years into my job, when things had stabilized, I had remarried. I looked at my current husband and I said, okay, it's time to write that memoir. I said I was going to write one at 25 and I'm nearing 50 and I still haven't done it. And so we were on a walk one night and I said, you know, I've been waiting all this time to write this book about my adolescence. And now I think I can finally commit and write a memoir, but I'm thinking I want to write it about Bob because at that point he'd been gone, let's say about five years, and I could feel some of my memories fading. And I looked at my current husband, Dave, and I said, the memories of my childhood and adolescence are at this point what they're going to be. I've retained what I'm going to retain. I think I want to write this one first. So that's how it came about. I wanted to tell the story because, as you mentioned in the subtitle, our lives before Bob's diagnosis were very much about embracing life and love, and we were obviously devastated by his diagnosis. However, we you know, decided to go on embracing life and love as best we could during his illness, and many people during that time and then after I lost Bob commented on our approach to that time period, and especially Bob's, they'd always said he taught them how to live. He was a philosopher and it's kind of how he was trained (laughs) was to embrace life and to teach others too. But they also said he had helped them learn how to die well. And so I thought that was significant and I wanted to share him with the world. How beautiful. Could we ask for our first reading, please? Sure. I'm actually, there's a prologue that's six months into the diagnosis. It's just a few pages, but I'm going to go past that and start with chapter one. 
which brings us to really the beginning of the journey with ALS. It's titled Foreign Tongue. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's another language. It's words so foreign to a lay person, even a lay person with a doctorate in English. I know why they started calling it Lou Gehrig's disease. Not just for all the reasons they put on the Muscular Dystrophy Association, MDA, website, such as Lou, who also had the disease, was amazing, or because his wife was also amazing, or because Lou made that awesome luckiest man speech, but because most people just look at you with a blank stare when you say it. Like you have just said, Susie sells seashells down by the seashore. It's ironic that amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is a tongue twister, given that before long, the people who get it cannot twist their tongues enough to utter a single syllable, let alone 11. And it certainly doesn't sound like something you die from. You die from cancer. You die from a car crash. You die when a plane is flown into the Twin Towers. You die in war. You die of a heart attack. You don't die of something called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. That's something they check you for in gym when you were in fifth grade. That's something that they should just point out like a curve in your spine and send you home with or without medication for. In fact, when the disease was first put on the table, this is exactly how I heard it. I heard them say the words Luke Eric's disease, or rather, I heard Bob say it, and I saw the words amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, come up on the computer screen when I typed twitch in arm in Google, but none of it registered. From December 11, 2011, when my husband told me he had a twitch in his arm and made a doctor's appointment to have it checked out, and I mocked him for such silliness, until December 29th when he was diagnosed, I uttered the words, but I didn't hear them. I didn't slow down to read what they meant on the screen. I just pushed them and it to the back of my mind as I continued to decorate the house and bake cookies and shop for Christmas for our two children, then three and eight. The furthest thing from my mind was that my husband was dying or at least I thought it was. Looking back now, I realize I was in the deepest denial I've ever experienced in my life, and raw and painful energy was simmering just beneath the surface. If there are parts of our brains responsible for certain things, I locked away the part that could learn anything about this disease, and I went on with the part that thought what we were really talking about was something that is not a fun diagnosis, but isn't something that will kill you. I honestly think that I spent those 18 days in December 2011 thinking ALS was some sort of syndrome that caused inconveniences, occasional pain, and maybe some mild suffering in a person's life. But that is all. Sure, you have it forever, but you barely notice it and you treat it. It acts up now and then. I actually didn't know anything about any such diseases either, but I had heard people tell me they had various ailments and they went on living. So in my mind, without acknowledging it by name, ALS became something along the lines of hypothyroidism. I thought that whatever Bob had might make me cook differently, require him to take some medications or change his lifestyle, but whatever it was would, in the end, be occasionally uncomfortable for Bob, but not deadly. And despite my education and being a curious person, that's how I left ALS in my mind and in my conversations with other people from December 11th until December 29th. The people we spoke to seemed to also go along with the charade. They didn't inform me about ALS. They probably figured that I, a researcher and Bob's wife, already knew. They assured me that it couldn't be ALS. They played along, as far as I knew. If they were troubled, they were doing a good job of being encouraging and hopeful and sparing me the gory details of this horrid disease. When I was an undergraduate studying logic, 
My father used to joke, Lou Gehrig has Lou Gehrig's disease. Coincidence? I think not. It always made him chuckle and got a laugh of recognition out of me at the weak thinking implied in such an attempt at reasoning. This joke was pretty much all I knew about Lou Gehrig or the disease at that time. No matter how much I press my memory, I cannot find any measure of reality about the disease in those few weeks. We talked to everyone about Bob's twitch and said he was seeing doctors and that Lou Gehrig's disease was on the table. But at no point during that period did I ever stop to do more than say those words. I said them. I ignored them. I researched nothing. I repeated over and over the same lines. I baked cookies and entertained guests and went on. Oh, wow. Deirdre, so what was the process of writing the book like? I'm always curious about writing memoir. It seems it's a very personal and very vulnerable exercise of putting like yourself on the page and I guess because I don't do it except for like in personal essays, it feels like I'm taking a microscope to like a memory and I'm dissecting it. And sometimes it works quite well and feels really good. And other times I'm going, wow, I don't remember, you know, this thing at all. And I'm, it's an emotion that I'm trying to, you know, to feel or to come back to. So I'm really curious about what for you, the process of writing the memoir, what that was like. So I write poetry and fiction as well. And this is my first long narrative because my other publications are a chapbook of poetry and a collection of short stories. And then, of course, my scholarship and some essays and things in journals. But this was the, the, you know, the extended narrative. And so I found that I could not write that except when I wasn't teaching because I am a professor and I teach four classes a semester. I can focus on shorter pieces that I can pick up and put down fairly quickly and get my mind back into, but I could not sustain this. So I needed summertime for this when I'm not teaching. And then because of the emotional material, I really needed a writing residency to do this. I mean, I have children. I still have two at home and my husband and pets and all, you know, life. (laughs) And so going in and out of those deep emotions, like you said, tackling something, it's just very hard to do that and then kind of walk out of that space and say, sure, let's make dinner and hang out. You know, you just you really need to dive in. So I wrote the draft over three separate residencies that totaled less than a month. It was fast and furious. The memories, because the time period of his illness was under 10 months, it was, you know, they're pretty they were pretty tight in my mind. Like I didn't have to, and it wasn't that long before I started drafting. So it was about, I actually started a little bit of the book while he was still alive, but five years was when I really dedicated myself. So I think, you know, they were relatively recent memories and a really intense short period of time. So accessing the memories wasn't hard, but having the space to process all the emotions while writing was important. And of course, then once I had a draft, I first shared it with my husband because he's my first reader of everything. He's a computer scientist, not a writer, but he's an excellent reader. And then he was like, you you know, you have a book, you know, and I so then I, I revised it. And then actually, I'm still really good friends with the first college writing teacher I had in freshman composition at a community college in 88. (laughs) And I wrote her and I said, will you read this and tell me if I have a book? (laughs) And she was lovely. She even did some gorgeous editing. She's she's still a fabulous editor. And she did some gorgeous editing that I really appreciated. And she wrote back and she said, yes, 
you have written a book. <laughs> and I said, okay, now we move forward with more editing and, you know, more revisions and querying and all of that. But, you know, they were my first two readers and that gave me a lot of confidence that this was something worth polishing and getting into the world. So, Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm not supposed to ask another question, but I'm going to just really quickly because so the the publishing side of um, nonfiction is typically different from fiction. And it's been my understanding that with nonfiction, you typically will pitch a proposal and some sample chapters, and then you, you know, send it to a publisher and a publisher will say, yes, we'll pay you to write the book. Or no, we won't pay you to write the book. But in this case, the book was completely finished when you sent it out. It was. And I have received a lot of mixed responses to that question of whether memoir falls into the category of traditional nonfiction for querying or if it falls more into the category of fiction. I have received both responses like, Mm -hmm. yes, you can go with a proposal and, you know, get a contract that way. But I have more often received since memoir is less about just teaching and informing and more about the style and the story that it aligns more with fiction. And so more often people do want to see your style and the whole book. In my case, I think I just knew I've always been hesitant to just pitch a proposal because, you know, then that means I have to write the book on their deadline. And given that my life I has to be under a fair amount of control for me to write it all, I always think I'm better off, you know, even if I pitch with a proposal, having a draft of that book is good for me because it will help me be ready. Because what if they say, yes, we want it. And can you give it to us in six months? And I'm teaching for four of them, you know, so I tend to kind of, I want to draft before I pitch, I guess. Oh, that's really good. Thank you. And could we have another reading, please? Sure. So I think I'm going to jump ahead to, we know Bob has ALS and it is in um, a section where he's trying to make some decisions about his life. I'm still focusing early in the book. It's in chapter 10 and it's midway through. I'm going to start. And remember, we left off December, late December. In early January, Bob began deciding what choices he would make for himself about his own care. And he placed the kids and me at the forefront of those choices. He was dying and there was no denying it. And everything we learned about ALS had taught us there was nothing he, we, or anyone could do about that. But certain things were still in Bob's control. He could still make some decisions about his life, and he could make some choices that would help those of us who were not terminally ill to live when he was gone. It wasn't long before Bob decided he didn't want to be what he called a watermelon on the counter, watching his life go by. D, I'd be trapped in my body. I'd have all these thoughts, and I wouldn't be able to express them. I wouldn't be able to help you with the kids like I've always done. I wouldn't be able to hug you or kiss you. I wouldn't be able to make love to you. You know how I would miss that, he teased. I know, but you'd still be here. You could see us. You could see the kids grow. But I'd be a watermelon on the counter. I'd be watching, but I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even give advice. Forget the physical stuff. I wouldn't be able to share any of the thoughts I was having or help anyone in any way. I listened, trying to imagine this new life he was describing. And what kind of life would that be for you? You'd have to be home all the time. You and the kids couldn't go anywhere. All the things we have loved to do, 
taking the kids on trips, introducing them to new foods and places, going to see theater and music, getting them out of this white town. You couldn't do any of that. But we'd have you. I mean, it would be okay. We could do it. The kids would have this dad in the other room, but I wouldn't really be adding anything meaningful to their lives. I would just be something to take care of. He paused and searched my eyes. I don't want to live like that. That's not living. My whole life is about making meaning. This is the shit I teach about. I've thought about this for a long time. What makes a good life? Living isn't just about being alive. It's about what you can contribute to those around you. It's about making the world better while you are here. We've made a good life. I love this life and you and the kids. I fucking love you like crazy. And I sure as hell wouldn't be giving it up if I had a fucking choice, if it weren't for this fucking disease. But I don't want to extend this shit. If this is how it's going to go, I'm getting out as soon as I can. And that means saying no to anything that's going to extend this shit once life isn't life anymore. I nodded. Watching the kids grow but not being able to do a damn thing to help them or you, that would be worse, he said. He didn't want our lives to become about suctioning his mouth, draining his catheter, feeding him through a tube, staying home every day of our lives, unable to even go to a store or a restaurant. Our lives would be nothing but maintenance of his limited life. And he didn't want that for us. He wanted us to go on living. He wanted us to thrive. I didn't know what I wanted. Well, I did, but I couldn't have what I wanted. I wanted Bob back. I wanted our lives back. I wanted this outrageously cruel fucking disease to go away. But most of all, I wanted whatever Bob wanted. I will do whatever you want me to do when you want me to do it. I am here and I want to do what you want to do. You say I'm calling the shots, but you are calling the shots. You just tell me what you need and I will do it. I will be who you need me to be as long as you need me to be it. We can do this thing, whatever it is, the way we've done everything else, together. I love you. I love you too. I held his hands in mine. We leaned forehead to forehead. I'm going to read just a little bit of the next chapter. When we lose someone from a terminal illness, we lose them one bit at a time first emotionally, then physically, or a combination of both. Whatever the combination or order, it's excruciating. When someone's skin is your own skin, losing them a bit at a time is like filleting yourself one layer at a time. There were times during Bob's illness when I likened losing him to tearing off a painful bandage one millimeter at a time, but I could no longer deny that we were of two bodies, one ailing and one growing stronger in order to carry the other. I was also already becoming his voice long before he began losing it, as I began carrying the news to others and becoming the communicator of all things to all people, including the children. Words were leaking out of the house. They had to, if one of us was going to survive. When life brings us joys, we want to share them. And when life brings us sorrow, we tend to fold in on ourselves, lie in bed, and generally try to shut out the world. Bob and I did this. We did this in the beginning. I told those I had to tell, and then I hid. We hid from early January until school started again and life had to go on. We hid. But we didn't hide as much as we wanted to because we had to stand up for the kids. We had to face what was leaking out of the sliding door and into the driveway and would soon become visible to all. 
When we received the horrid news of Bob's ALS and eventual demise, he died. He didn't literally die, but a part of him, of us, died in that moment. Wow. So Deidre, I'm really curious about what might writing have allowed you to reflect on or learn about yourself? I think, you know, it was hard to go back and revisit the painful parts of that time, but it helped me to, I think, really process even more about how amazing Bob was during that time. Because of course, during his illness, I was just running to keep up. I mean, he progressed so quickly. Every day was about what do you need? What can we do? How can we change it? What device do we need? Et cetera, et cetera. And I knew he'd been amazing, but I don't think I could really, really see him or what he was going through a hundred percent until I was writing the book because I had enough distance from my own pain and suffering to see us a little bit from the outside certainly him and and myself too. And I think, you know, it's funny, I've had people say, I can't wait to read your book. It's going to help me learn so much about you. And I think I, I say to them, I have, I've said to myself for sure. And I've sometimes said it to them, remember, you're only learning about me during that nine months or 10 months, because I'm not that person anymore, right? Mm-hmm. This is about how I was processing it then. I think, you know, I, I view a lot of the things differently now that I've had some distance and time to reflect. And I think that's important. Like when, when someone writes about a period of their lives, you're learning about, you know, if they're writing honestly, which I I really did about how I felt then Mm. and who I was then, but I have changed and how I process what happened changes a little bit in that time. So I think the self that I was is now in the book (laughs) along with Bob and, you know, I'm here and I think he'd be proud of like the way I've changed and, and grown because I really didn't want to survive when he was diagnosed. I was really ready to, you know, go with him. But I'm definitely I've grown into who I am now. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And what a wonderful gift to receive for yourself, to give yourself, like, but also to give to readers. Um, so thank you for that. And can we have one more reading, please, before we go? So the book is also funny, which is hard to believe given its subject matter, (laughs) but there's moments of levity. We were both, we dealt with, we always dealt with dark things with humor. Dark humor is just part of, it was part of who we were, and this was no different. And this is just a, a short chapter, which I find, I find anyway, a moment of levity. And it's titled Juicing. Time crept forward as we absorbed the devastating news, and before we knew it, it was mid-January and school was back in session for me, Bob, and Liam, who was in third grade. We decided to keep Maeve home because Bob wanted to soak up as much time with her as possible. We had to go forward. We needed to get busy living. Bob and I had classes to teach and kids to raise, and we needed to get Bob's health on track with good food because his body was attacking itself. ALS attacks motor neurons in the brain and spinal cord, eventually impacting all voluntary muscle movement. Voluntary muscles are ones we can control, muscles we use to do things like lifting our arms or legs, speaking or breathing. Muscles we can't control are ones like our hearts. We can't hold our heartbeats the way we can hold our breath. We had a membership to a big box bulk food place. Bob's folks had given it to us when Liam was born so we could get cheaper formula and diapers. When I got home from work one day that month, there were huge quantities of vegetables all over our kitchen table. Bob was juicing. 
His dad had gifted us a Breville juicer because our friends had told us juicing was the quickest way to get good nutrients into Bob's body. The juicer was whirring like crazy, and Bob was standing there in a pair of cargos, a tank top, and a flannel shirt, his usual attire. Hey, what's going on? I asked. I'm juicing, he said ecstatically. I can see that, I said, surveying the mess in the kitchen. Giant bag of sweet potatoes, carrots, celery, kale, spinach, peppers. There were so many ingredients and peelings and bags everywhere. There's a video I want you to watch. I left it on the computer in the office, Bob said, shouting over the juicer without skipping a beat. Okay, go watch it. Okay. I laughed because he looked a bit nuts as he kept feeding the machine its vegetables. I'll be right back. Great. He was so enthusiastic that he was almost maniacal. I watched the video and then explained what he was doing. Bob had found a woman on YouTube who said she had reversed her multiple sclerosis with her diet. He was going to try to reverse this son of a bitch disease with food. I walked back into the kitchen where Bob had a giant pitcher full of juice. It was at least a gallon's worth. The kitchen reeked. Did you juice the onions? Yep. Seriously? You juiced the onions? Hell yeah. Oh, no, Bob. That's gross. You eat onions. You eat them raw. You can cook them. You don't juice onions. That's going to be disgusting. It's going to take over everything else. Oh, shit. It is? He said dumbfounded. Bob could boil pasta and heat stuff. He made mean scrambled eggs because he had the patience to cook them on low. But Bob was no cook. I once had him mash the potatoes and those fresh, delicious babies were mashed so well that by the time I realized how long he'd been mashing, they had turned into those boxed, made-from-potato-flakes mashed potatoes dished out in school cafeterias. You've got to be kidding me. Let me smell it. The container was a Hulk green and the smell of onions was overpowering. Yuck! I can't believe you're going to drink that. Bob smelled it. Oh, shit. These spaced out moments were the Bob moments that were unforgettable and delightful. Did you watch the video? He asked. Yes, I get it. It's pretty amazing. It's worth trying. Let's do this thing. Well, I'm not going to waste it. I guess I've got to drink it. Here goes. Bob plugged his nose and began downing the entire jug, taking breaks to shake his head and wince. He managed to drink that entire fucking onion thing. He was going to slow down this, quote, ALS fucker, as he often referred to it, down. Damn it. We were going to fight this damn disease. Oh, what a lovely scene. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. So where can we buy Find a Place for Me, Embracing Love and Life in the Face of Death? My publisher is Regal House Publishing, Hag Press, their socially conscious imprint. So you can visit the Regal House website, my website, DeirdreFagan.com, or wherever books are sold. And certainly I encourage folks to support independent bookstores as much as they can. That's wonderful, Deirdre. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for the readings and for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Oh, anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. 
Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on YIWriteBattlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.